Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, let me add my welcome to Steve's. As uh, you may have heard, I'm Mike. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. I'll speak on that passage in a moment. But let's just bow our heads in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds now by your Holy Spirit, we ask. Grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, about 15 years ago, a friend of mine, his name is Dave Horn, visited the People's Republic of China, and he was fascinated to see how the great nation was developing, because along with its newfound prosperity and great wealth, China was quickly embracing aspects of Western consumer culture. It was Christmas time, so Dave went shopping to find some gifts. He was amazed to see in a shop window a nativity scene. China is a communist state. Many Christians are persecuted for their faith there. Underground churches meet in homes in fear of reprisals. And yet here in the shop, in full daylight, was a full nativity scene with Joseph and Mary, you know, the little figures, the wise men, the shepherds, the angels, a few sheep. And Dave drew nearer and he peeked into the crib. And there, tucked in a blanket and quietly sleeping, was Father Christmas. True story. You see, you can have all the trappings of Christmas and completely miss what it's really about. Actually completely fail to recognize that it's about Jesus. And as we prepare for Christmas during this Advent season as a church, we don't want to miss what it's really all about. So as Steve said, in the next couple of weeks, today and the next week, we're looking at some of the key biblical teaching on the incarnation of Jesus. The incarnation. That is an odd word, isn't it? We don't use it for the rest of the year. Incarnation means in flesh. Like chili con carne is chili with meat, chili with flesh. So if you ever see a recipe that says veggie con carne, you know it's wrong. This season, we remember that God, who is a spirit, became fully human. So I want to remind you today, or share this teaching, of three things. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, why Jesus came. Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why Jesus came. And the last time I preached on John chapter 1, it expanded into five sermons. So I hope you're sitting comfortably. (laughs) Firstly, who Jesus is. The first thing we learn is that he is God the Son. God the Son in his intimacy and glory. Look again at verse 1 with me, would you? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is introduced here with a a term. Actually, the word underneath it is quite familiar to you if you know the word logo. It's logos. It means word. Now, our words are part of us, aren't they? We think them, we shape them, we speak them out. You can feel them coming out of your mouth. Sometimes you wish you hadn't said them. They have a life of their own. Ever said something you wish you hadn't said and wish you could pull it back, but it came back to bite you later? Of course you have. Once those words are out of your mouth, they have a power and life of their own. They have the power to create situations. I love you. Just three words. I hate that. 
you're sacked. If you hear those three sentences in a row, you know it's over. Now, John starts by describing Jesus as the Word, using a, trying to give us a concept here. The Word through whom God spoke and created everything that has been made. But notice, very important, that the Word himself has not been created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So this word, John here is taking us back to the dawn of creation. Before hydrogen and helium and atoms and stars and planets to a time when there was only God. This word was there. And in the simplest and most profound statement, John says that the word was with God and he was God. So Jesus Christ existed before time and space. And he has always been with God, and he's always been God. Notice how those two statements sit side by side. When we were young children, my parents uh, made us learn John chapter 1. It took us a long time to learn it, and I'm really glad they did, because this is some of the most wonderful teaching in the whole Bible. The Quran says, people of the book, Quran calls Christians people of the book, the Quran says, people of the book, do not exceed the limits of devotion in your religion or say anything about God which is not the truth. Jesus, son of Mary, is only a messenger of God. His word and a spirit from him whom he conveyed to Mary. Do not say that there are three gods. It is better for you to stop believing in the Trinity. There is only one God. He is too glorious to give birth to a son. Now, we certainly agree with one thing with our Muslim friends. There are not three gods. There is only one. But the Christian of understanding of God is totally unique. The nature of God is unique. He is unlike any other being. Why should we assume he is like us? His nature is triune. He is a unity of three persons in one Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three in one, have always existed. There never was a time when the Father was not. There never was a time when the Son was not. There never was a time when the Holy Spirit was not. They have lived forget forever in a dance of harmony, love, and joy. This three-in-one God is a supremely happy being. And he created the universe to share his love and happiness with creatures who were made to be like him. That is why we are hardwired for love and joy and community, and we wither without them because we're made like him. And that is the rich reality behind verse 18, if you want to skip forward to the end of the reading. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And the original language here, by the way, is really intimate. It doesn't just say, in the closest relationship with the Father. It says, in the bosom of the Father. Close as you can get. In the bosom of the Father. This same word is used back in John chapter 13 when Jesus is at a famous dinner, the Last Supper. He's troubled, deeply troubled and churned up. He predicts that one of his followers will, will betray and dece deceive and betray him. And there's one disciple who was particularly close to Jesus, and many scholars think it is John who wrote this book, 
And he is so close at the dinner that he's actually leaning on Jesus' bosom. He's leaning back on him. Dining in that culture was quite different. Men would recline and lean against each other. It's a position of deep friendship, close intimacy. So John 1 verse 18, this son, Jesus, has always been in the deepest, closest intimacy with the Father. But also, he is God. He didn't start to be God when he was raised from the dead. He didn't sort of get created as a separate God sometime later. He always was God. And that means that he is glorious. Verse 14 says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Now this book, John, as the other three Gospels, is based on eyewitness testimony. Great, one of the greatest historians of this period and, and scholars, Professor Richard Borkham, has published an entire book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, pointing out how the Gospels have the character of eyewitness testimony. Little details and things that are said that eyewitnesses point out and say. The people who spent their time with Jesus, and these men had been with him for three years, day and night. So they've lived with a guy for three years on the road, in the rough times and the good times. They actually said that he was glorious. They came to worship him as God. Back in chapter 2, Jesus changed water into wine. You ever been to a Christian wedding? You've almost certainly heard some sermons on this. Water into wine. He changes water into wine as only a creator could. And then it says the disciples saw his glory and put their faith in him. Now, what is this glory here? It means a visible, powerful appearance of God. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, report a, a special event on a mountain where Jesus was transfigured. He was almost like lit up. He, he became so white. His clothes became so white and shining. You could hardly look at them. Matthew's Gospel said his clothes became white as light and a bright cloud enveloped him. And they were absolutely staggered and they didn't know what to do because they suddenly realized this carpenter from Nazareth is somebody much bigger than we ever realized. They saw his glory in a dramatic way. But John's gospel doesn't tell that particular story. He says that Jesus' glory was seen throughout his life in the ordinary circumstances, particularly in his miracles, especially in his, his cross, where he was glorified. That's who Jesus is, God the Son. With all the intimacy with God the Father and the glory in keeping with his nature. But there's a second aspect of who Jesus is here. And we always have to keep these two in balance. And church history is a story of people often getting one side more weighted than the other. We have to hold these two sides together. Because Jesus is also God the man. God the man. Look again with me at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is very powerful language. It's not saying that Jesus put on flesh like you put on your coat or your jacket, covering up something underneath. It is saying that Jesus, the divine word, joined himself to flesh and became a different, in some sense, a different person. He changed from what he was before. It is a complete identification with flesh. So let me just 
also point out, we said it in Revelation, we'll say it again, Jesus still has our, our flesh. He didn't just do it for a while, you know, sort things out and go back to being a spirit. He still bears our flesh. He, that means he took on our humanity fully, our flesh and blood, everything about us, except our sin. He became flesh and blood. He, was, he embraced who we are. He was united with our humanity. 16th century French reformer John Calvin wrote this, God's natural son fashioned for himself a body from our body, flesh from our flesh, bones from our bones, that he might be one with us. Think about that, he's one with us. Ungrudgingly he took his, our nature upon himself to impart to us what was his and to become both son of God and son of man in common with us. Now I recently held a tiny baby girl in my arms called Joy. Her mum handed her to me very trustingly and I put her on my shoulder and started doing that jig that experienced parents do. I haven't done it for a few years. I was glad I could still do it. I, was, I felt I'd still got it. She was endearingly cute and I was a little bit nervous holding someone else's baby. It's a big responsibility. And there was a time friends, when the eternal word of God was the same size as Joy Archer. When he was utterly reliant on his mother's milk. When he was utterly weak and helpless. When the word could only cry. When he needed to be fed, dressed, and have his nappy changed. There was a time, in fact, when the eternal word of God joined himself in the darkness of a womb to a woman's egg, which is about the size of a, of a printed full stop on a page. 0.14 millimeters. Joined himself to an egg. And Joseph, Mary's fiance, was not remotely involved in his pregnancy. It was the only ever virgin birth and only God could have brought it about. Now, do you find this hard to believe? Do you find it hard to conceive of? Join the club. In his book, Miracles, the great thinker C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. This is the big miracle. Christians say that God became man. Every other miracle actually prepares for this, exhibits this, or results from this. If you think about it, that makes sense. Every other miracle comes from the fact that Jesus was God become man. And C.S. Lewis points out in this essay, it's impossible for us to estimate the probability of the incarnation. You know, what are the chances it could have happened? He says, it's like asking whether the nature... Whether, sorry, I'll start again. He said, it's like asking whether the existence of nature is intrinsically probable. You see that? The whole creation of the universe only happened once. Was it probable? You can't put a stat on it. But you can say this. The creator who spoke the universe into existence is capable of this unique act of becoming a human. And I don't think we're ultimately meant to try and understand it fully. There's a mystery about this beyond our pay grade. But we are meant to wonder at it. 
and poetry does it best. Here's some words from Charles Wesley. Let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God, contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. He laid his glory by, he wrapped himself in our clay. Unmarked by human eye, the latent Godhead lay. Infant of days he here became and bore the mild Emmanuel's name. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God the Son and God the Man. He is glorious and intimate with the Father and he's fully identified with humanity. That is the God we worship. Amen? That's who Jesus is. Now secondly, and much more quickly, what Jesus did. We learn from this passage that Jesus came all the way down. Jesus came from a great height. As the eternal Son of God, he lived for all eternity with God the Father and the Spirit. He was beyond time and space, and he stooped down and he became a man. He did not exploit his glory or use it for his own advantage. He concealed it within his humanity. But he did not stop there. He stooped even lower. He stooped down to death. Even to death on a cross. Crucifixion was a punishment for slaves. It was not a punishment for citizens of the Roman Empire. Citizens would not be crucified. It was too disgraceful. But the eternal Son of God took to himself our humanity and then died upon a slave's cross. This was his humiliation. Down from eternity to time. Down from the heavens to the earth. Down to humanity. Down to death. Even the death of a slave. And he came with resolve. He set his face towards Jerusalem, Luke says. He prevented Peter from using his sword against the men who'd come to arrest him. He refused to defend himself against his prosecutors. He restrained his power on the cross, not calling on legions of angels to rescue him. The road to the cross was no accident. He chose it. Every step. Suffering was not something that happened to Jesus. It was something he did. No one took his life away from him. He laid it down of his own accord. His death was not a failure. He was not a tragic victim. He did not come to share our victimhood. His death had a purpose. He came to lift and carry and bear our sins far away. Their guilt, their punishment, their shame. To drink down the cup of God's perfect wrath to the dregs for you and me. His choice of this path can only be explained by love. His love for the Father, who he would obey even to death, and his love for the lost sheep that he came to find, determining to die their death for them to deliver them. This is the path that Jesus was following as he rode with resolve into Jerusalem. That description that I've just given you is largely borrowed from a Dr. Gary Williams, and I think it's one of the most wonderful summaries of what Jesus did that I've ever heard. He came all the way down. But thirdly, why did Jesus do it? We've seen who Jesus is. We've seen what he did. Now we're asking, why did he do it? And the answer is to give us grace. 
to give you and me grace. Read verse 14 with me again. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, this verse says that Jesus made his dwelling among us. And actually, again, the, the, the original language behind that, the Greek language, uses a very strange word, an unusual word, which is a word not, not that you would normally use for somebody making a dwelling or living. It really means pitching a tent. It's kind of camping language. He pitched a tent. He, he took up residence with us, but, but in a tent. Now, what's going on there? The writer is deliberately calling to mind, for the attentive readers, the Israelites way back some 1,400 years before when they were freed from Egypt and rescued during the Exodus by a mighty hand of God and, and led out into the wilderness. They were rescued, and God promised to be with them and be their God, and he was to be their guiding light and protector. He led them by a pillar of fire, in the day and a, and a pillar of, beg your pardon, a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud in the day. And he gave instructions for a special tent to be made called the tabernacle. And this tabernacle was the, the place in the world where God would specially be present with humanity. He would take up residence with them. And when he did, you know, it was so glorious, nobody could go in. He was tabernacling with them. It's the only place like it in the world. And, uh, but Moses, the leader of God's people, was begging for more. He wanted more of God. He yearned to know God more fully. He begged to see him. He was basically saying, Lord, show me the real you. But God warned him that his presence was so overwhelmingly holy that no mortal could bear it. It would be impossible for Moses to comprehend God and survive. But God said, I will let you see my goodness, the sum of my nature, I'll let, it, I'll let you see it pass by, sort of see the, the rear view. And in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses hid in a cleft in a big rock, and God passed by in front of him, and God spoke some amazing words, which de declared the essence of his nature. He said this, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He passed by before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness. This is grace and truth. That's, what, that's the essence of who God is. He's abounding, overflowing in grace and truth. Now, John recalls all this when he, he writes, the word became flesh and tabernacled with us, full of grace and truth, the qualities of God himself, God's grace, his mercy and kindness to those who don't deserve it, his truth, his absolute reliability and faithfulness. And Jesus is full of these qualities. It says in verse 14, he's full of grace and truth. And then he goes on in verse 16 to say this, out of his fullness, we have all received grace. In place of grace already given. You know, in a few minutes we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to take a little cup which has a, a piece of a wafer representing bread and, a, and some juice that represents blood, wine. We're going to take that 
And the thing about that sacrament of the Lord's Supper is you, all you do is receive. All you do is, is take and receive because that's what the gospel is. You just receive it. You don't do anything. It's done. Because he's so overwhelming and full of grace. He pours it out. That's why he came. To give you his grace. Now, this idea here is, is grace on top of grace. No, the law of Moses, God's teaching and instruction, is a gracious gift. We know now what, what is right and wrong and what God thinks about human life. We know about uh, civic morality. We know about the holiness of God. All these wonderful things are taught to us in the, Mo- in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses. It's pointing us in the right direction, isn't it? It's perfect and good, but oh, it shows me just how far I am from a holy God. So this good and perfect law can become to me a heavy burden. We needed more. We poor sinners needed more grace, more kindness, more extraordinary undeserved mercy. And that is why Jesus came. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Why did he come all the way down to die for us? on a cross because no one else could because there is no salvation without a triune God if God were not triune if he were not father son and spirit if he had no son to die in our place what then God would have had to make a third party suffer we would have had to provide one of us and that's not grace because we're stumping it up ourselves and it's also not possible because none of us is good enough The cross was what we needed, and the cross is only possible because God is a trinity. Now, sometimes we Christians present the story of the gospel like the story of a heavenly headmaster who's caught us smoking behind the bike sheds at school, and we are going to get a caning. Back in the day, it didn't actually happen. (laughs) But a nice classmate called Jesus came along and took our caning for us. So God there is depicted as the heavenly headmaster, And being a Christian is about keeping the rules, being good pupils sent home with a good report. But according to John, God is the eternal Father loving his Son eternally. So what kind of salvation does he offer? Salvation is not about becoming a good pupil. It's about becoming a son and daughter of the living God, being embraced and adopted into the divine family. That's what God wants to achieve. Verse 12 says, Jesus gave us the right to become children of God. This is what Christmas is about, friends. I'll tell you a story. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard told a story about a king who fell in love with a humble maiden. And he dreamed of winning her heart. And as men do, he began to contemplate his options. The first and most obvious strategy was the direct one. He would dazzle her. He would show up with his impressive retinue. Uh, dressed as a king in his crown and his robes, golden and purple, and display his wealth and announce his love. And surely that would, would overwhelm her. But that was just the problem. If she responded as he hoped, how could he ever be sure whether it was really the king she loved or just the wealth and the privilege? So he pondered a second strategy, the, the other end of the spectrum. He would go in disguise. He would dress himself up as a beggar, 
He would not be accompanied by attendants. He would cover up his, his robes with rags, and he would therefore hope to woo her as a humble man. But he realized that this wasn't the answer either, because at best she would fall in love with the beggar. And that was just a disguise. It wasn't who he really was. It was a deception. He was the king. So he thought of a third way. The reverse approach. He would elevate her up to his level. He would find some secret way of giving her a noble title and fabulous wealth. She would suddenly become one of the aristocracy. She'd become part of his class. And then he would approach her with the hope that she would respond in love. But the danger of this, he quickly realized, was that it would imply that she wasn't good enough for him as a humble maiden. But in fact, the opposite was the case. It was as a humble maiden that he loved her. So what could he do? At last, he came to a radical conclusion. The only way that could succeed, he would do that which was unthinkable. He would do the thing that no earthly king had ever done. He would descend from his throne. He would empty himself of all his wealth and privilege. And in this way, he would identify with the humble maiden, not by pretending to be poor, but by actually becoming poor. He would share her lot. He would share her suffering. He would share her poverty. He would take the initiative and become truly equal to her if in that way he was able to secure her love. For this, says Kierkegaard, is the unfathomable nature of love that it desires equality with the beloved, not in jest merely, but in earnest and truth. And friends, that is what Jesus Christ did. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He loved you so much that he came all the way down, took on your nature, died in your place to win you. Christmas and the incarnation means that God went to infinite lengths to make himself one whom we can know personally. That is grace upon grace. Some of you will remember a very old hymn from the 17th century by Samuel Crossman. My song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? He came from his blessed throne, salvation to bestow, but men made strange and none the longed-for Christ would know. But oh, my friend, my friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. A New York pastor and author Tim Keller told a story of a woman, very, very successful woman, a Wall Street businesswoman who was a millionaire, very successful on Wall Street, an investor who started to explore the, the claims of Christianity seriously, going to the church and reading the Bible and so on. And she said to him at one point, I'm afraid that this might be true. I'm afraid that what you're saying about Jesus might be true, because if it is true, there is no limit to what he could ask of me. He who gave everything for us. And the place where that grace cashes out 
is in our relationships, our relationships with one another. And as we come to the Lord's table, it's appropriate that we should examine our hearts and, and just ask ourselves the question in the, in the quiet of a few moments. Am I currently dealing with other people here out of grace? God has given me so much. Am, am, am I like an ungrateful servant or one who shows the grace of God to others? If I can just speak personally for a moment, um, and I, I, I have had my wife's permission to share this. Our marriage was not in a good place after 15 years. We've been married 15 years, and it was as if the marriage was getting threadbare. Old habits were starting to grate on each other and irritate, and we were pointing it out. We were grumpy, sharp, snarky, pointing out failure, holding grudges. Wrong was done on both sides. Finally, we realized the problem. We have stopped dealing with each other out of grace. And we repented and renewed, and grace started to flow through again. That's the wonderful news. You can change today. It's as if there's a cross in the corner of the room. Go there now. Take your sins. Lay them down. Walk out of here free again. Let's pray. Glorious Lord, we would not dare to come before you, but in fact, you invite us to come boldly. You've loved us so much. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Be with us especially now at the Lord's table, we pray, and fill our hearts with grace. Amen.